Morning, everyone. And welcome to those who are with us for the first time today. We are working our way through uh, the 12 apostles, the apostles of Jesus Christ. And this morning, uh, we are looking at John. And there's a, a story by fourth century theologian, Jerome. He tells a story about the apostle John. And according to the story, John lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him into church and he could hardly muster the voice to speak. During the individual gatherings that they had, he hardly said anything at all. But when he did, what he said was little children love one another. And week after week or time after time, he would repeat those same words, little children love one another. And those in attendance were getting somewhat frustrated that this was all that they heard from him, little children love one another. And they said to him, teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied simply, because it is the Lord's commandment and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Now, we have no way today of verifying Jerome's story except to say that it does sound a lot like the author of John's Gospel and the author of that first epistle from John, which was our scripture reading for today, which had the word love in it probably more than any other passage in the entire Bible. <clears throat> in terms of background on the Apostle John, most of what applied to James and was covered last week by Pastor Glenn also applies to John, since James and John were brothers. In the Gospel lists of the Apostles, John always appears after his brother James. He is therefore presumed to be the younger of the two brothers. And on the basis that tradition holds that he lived to quite a late date, he's also presumed to be the youngest of all of the disciples of Jesus. <clears throat> and you might remember from last week that Jesus had a special name for James and John. It was Boanerges. In Greek, it means sons of thunder but it's actually derived from the Aramaic, which means sons of rage. And it seems that these two were apparently feisty and had a potentially destructive zeal, which likened them to a thunderstorm. <clears throat> and evidently Jesus was well aware of all of this when he chose them, which is good news for us because many of us also have potentially destructive traits, um, which, if in the hands of the master, can also be used for good. John and his brother James were fishermen. His father too. It seems that together they ran a relatively large fishing enterprise for the time. Their father was <coughs> Zebedee and their mother seems to be Salome. 
who, if you recall from last week's comparison of the three gospel records of the women at the foot of the cross, Salome may well have been the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would make the sons of rage first cousins to the Prince of Peace, which is kind of amusing. <clears throat> Together with Peter, James and John, I'll just run through some of these. So we see that up there, Mary Magdalene is easy to pick out amongst the women at the foot of the cross. She appears in all of the records there. Then we have Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who is also, we believe, the wife of Clopas. <clears throat> and then the final one is the mother of Zebedee's sons, who appears as Salome. And we believe that that therefore makes her uh, Mary's sister. Now, John was part of that inner circle of Jesus. In fact, the inner, inner part of the inner circle with Peter, James and John. He was present <clears throat> at many key points in Jesus's life and at many key points at which the other disciples were not privy to. He was there for the raising of Jairus's daughter. He was there during the transfiguration and he was there during Jesus's time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, <clears throat> just before his crucifixion. And this appearance of these three at these important times, together with their names consistently being listed amongst the first in any of the lists of the apostles, makes these three the inner circle of that inner circle of Christ. Peter, James, John, and then Andrew, who was sometimes included with them. He was there at the Mount of Olives, you might remember, when they questioned Jesus about when the temple would be destroyed. <clears throat> and after them, all of the others. <clears throat> Within the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark and Luke, John rarely appears on his own and mostly he is silent. When he does speak, he comes across as feisty and arrogant and zealous and somewhat judgmental. From what we learn of him, it seems that he well and truly lived up to that nickname that Jesus gave him. James and John are right in the thick of the arguments about who of the disciples will be the greatest and who will take the positions of honour. It was James and John that wanted to take those positions of honour alongside Jesus in his glory. And so they asked for them. In Luke's gospel, the brothers come up with their own solution for the lack of hospitality that is shown to Jesus and his travelling companions by a Samaritan village. They want to call down fire from heaven uh, and fry them but that is not Jesus's way. There will come a time for judgment, but that is not why he's come to earth. And so he shows them a better way, the way of love. Jesus turns and he rebukes them, James and John, not the Samaritans. 
And he simply moves on to another place where presumably they were better received and they did find the accommodation or the hospitality that they were looking for. In Mark's gospel, the only time when John is recorded as having spoken on his own, it comes right after the disciples have been arguing amongst themselves about who will be the greatest. And in response, Jesus gives these disciples a lesson on servant leadership. He welcomes a little child to himself. And it's difficult to tell from the written record what the tone of John's voice might have been in the words that he speaks at this time. Perhaps he was zealously bragging when he says, Teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. You know, perhaps it was along the lines of what a great job we did. But it seems more likely, given the context and the lesson that has just been given, that this is early evidence of John's maturing as a disciple, as he's learning how to love. It's more likely that it comes across as a confession. Teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. But whatever his intent, the content of what he says indicates that this young man, John, had a great propensity towards being very judgmental of others. Jesus shows him another way, the way of love. Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and can in the next moment say anything bad about me, says Jesus, for whoever is not against us is for us. Towards the end of the book of Luke, we find Peter and John sent out to prepare the Passover for Jesus. Later on in Acts, they are found waiting and constantly in prayer in Jerusalem with the other disciples. In chapter 3 of Acts, John is present with Peter when a crippled beggar is healed. And then because of that, they are called to account together before the Sanhedrin. The next we hear of John is in Acts chapter 8, when it seems that by this time he had become a leader in the early church because he is chosen by them to be sent with Peter as a representative of them to investigate the reports of the conversion of the Samaritans. Now, given that he had wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans, it's also pretty interesting that he ended up being the one going to uh, this place where this, these conversions were happening and actually being the one to lay hands on the Samaritans and witness the coming of the Holy Spirit to them. The final record that directly mentions John by name comes from the Apostle Paul, where it is clear by that time he is considered one of the pillars in the early church. Paul directly references him as such and as one of the three who extended the right hand of fellowship to the Apostle Paul himself. 
So already in just these few records from the early church, we're starting to see a very different John to the one who presented early on in the Synoptic Gospels, to the John who wanted to elevate himself above all others and to the John who wanted to cast out anyone that he didn't think was worthy of being part of Jesus's disciples. That's pretty much it in terms of concrete, undisputed biblical evidence about John. Everything else we have to gather from the internal evidence, from within the writings and the traditions that have been ascribed to him, and from the external evidence, the writings of the early church historians, the church fathers. Now, traditionally, John is regarded as the author of five books in the Bible. The Gospel of John, the three epistles of John, and the book of Revelation. And so by this reckoning, he would have produced about 5% of the Bible and would be the most prolific New Testament author after Luke and Paul. But it should be noted that this tradition of authorship has been hotly contested over the years. And I have wrestled over the last couple of weeks with how to proceed from this point. And as a result of that wrestling, I am uncomfortable just to proceed without at least flagging some of the issues that there are at this point. So is there anything within these books to suggest who their authors are? And the answer to that is yes, there are. The Gospel of John, we are told in the 21st chapter, was written by the disciple who loved Jesus, which is fairly definitive in a kind of ambiguous way. Who is this disciple who Jesus loved? The first epistle of John is completely anonymous. The author does not name himself or even allude to himself anywhere in that letter. 2 John and 3 John are both labelled as being from the elder. And in Revelation, John is named as the author and we're told in there that it was John who received the vision at Patmos. Now, for the first readers, anything more than that would be completely unnecessary. They would know without a doubt who the beloved disciple was. They would know who the elder was and they would know which John was at Patmos. But the further out you go from the time of Jesus, the fewer and fewer people have actual first-hand experience of knowing who these people are and the more and more things are being passed down and things start to get a little murky. And when you overlay all of this with the fact that you are dealing with perhaps one of the most common names for males at the time, things do start to get a little bit murky. And I don't want to make anyone's head spin today, so we're only going to touch on this lightly. But within the Gospel itself, there are two Johns mentioned. One of them is John the Baptist, and that's obvious from the description of him and what he's doing. The other is Peter and Andrew's father. Now, he clearly wasn't a disciple, and so he clearly wasn't 
the author of that gospel. John the Baptist was beheaded way too early, so it wasn't him that wrote the gospel either. Outside of the gospel, we find all of these Johns labelled in some of the early writings. John the Elder, John the Presbyter, John the Gospel Writer, John the Evangelist, John of Patmos and John the Apostle. And we also have this disciple whom Jesus loved. Are these all one and the same person? That is a million dollar question. And it's not one that we're going to be able to resolve today because some scholars have spent their whole life on this and it's still not really 100% certain. To show you what, just give you a taste for what some of the issues are, this is a record from Papias. He was a bishop in Hierapolis. And he's, this is one of, one of the earliest records that we have. Now, Unfortunately, the original writings of Papias don't exist anymore. They've been lost to the world. But some of his work was, has been preserved by direct quotations in other authors' works. So Eusebius is one of those. And this is what he records of Papias's work. And Papias is telling us here how he sourced his information. He says, if then anyone who had attended on the elders came, I asked minutely after their sayings, what Andrew or Peter said, or what was said by Philip, or by Thomas, or by James, or by John, or by Matthew, or by any of the other disciples of the Lord, things which Ariston and the presbyter John and the disciples of the Lord said. Now, of course, the obvious issue there is that there are two references to John in that statement. Are they two references to the same person? We don't know. Or, are, or were there two different people that were influential in the teachings of the early church? So that we can move on, all I'm going to say here is that there is good evidence that the Apostle John wrote the gospel and is therefore the beloved disciple. And by and large, and I say by and large, because not entirely, but by and large, the church has been comfortable with that over the years. There are also strong links between the Gospel of John and the first letter of John in terms of content. And so by and large, the church has been comfortable that they are written by the same author. In the end, does any of this really matter? I would suggest it matters not much. We work with what's been left behind. It is the inspired word of God. And so for the remaining time, what I want to do is focus on this figure of the beloved disciple. Traditionally held to be John, the apostle, and to learn what we can from him. Now, the beloved disciple is specifically mentioned within the Gospel of John. That's the only place where he appears, within John's Gospel, five times. And on each occasion, he is held in contrast, either by what he says or by what he does, with Peter. The first mention 
of this disciple whom Jesus loves comes to us in John chapter 13. It's very familiar to us. It is um, the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. We've remembered it today. We know it as the Lord's Supper. And the picture that is on the top left of your screen there is traditionally how artists have rendered this little scene. The disciples are sitting around the table. Jesus is usually in the centre of them. And there's this figure, which is the figure of John, supposedly, this beloved apostle, and he's leaning on Jesus. Sometimes he's pictured as he is there in the, the lower uh, left-hand side, sort of lolling on the table in front of Jesus. Now, any of you who've ever had to go out to dinner with young children and have had one of them lolling on you like this when you're trying to eat will know how annoying that would be. I don't think you'd stay the beloved disciple for that long if you were going to loll as a full-grown man on someone's chest. And it's highly unlikely that that is what happened. The picture on the bottom right of your screen, where the men are all laying on their sides, reclining around the table, propped up on cushions, is more the way that people dined in Jesus' time. When we read that they reclined at the table, that is literally what they did. That's how the woman who anointed Jesus' feet was able to do that without crawling under the table trying to guess which feet she was anointing. They were right there in front of her because the men would have been reclining at the table. So here the disciple who Jesus loved is described as reclining next to Jesus. Now in Greek, that word reclining is, means in the bosom of. So here is this beloved disciple and he's described as being in the bosom of Jesus. Now Jesus has just said that he knows who's going to betray him. All the other disciples want to know who this is going to be. So Peter motions to the beloved disciple who's right there next to Jesus. He's on, on his side right next to him. And he says, ask him. So John leans back and he asks him who it is. Now, this background is important because there's only one other place in the whole Gospel of John where this word in the bosom appears. And it appears right back in chapter 1 and it's talking about Jesus. No one has ever seen God but God the one and only who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Jesus sees from a heavenly perspective because he is in the bosom of the Father. This beloved disciple is in the bosom of Jesus. That gives him a privileged place. He sees from the perspective of Jesus. And that is what we're supposed to take with us through this gospel as we look at where else he appears. Next time we encounter him is at the cross. And here, famously, his intimacy with Jesus is confirmed in his taking Mary as his mother. 
and she him as her son. But here he is also the only one of the male disciples who has faithfully followed and stayed with Jesus to the cross. As such, he would be the only male eyewitness amongst the disciples of what happened at the cross. He would be the only one of the men who would witness the glorification of Jesus on the cross. He would be the only one of them who would see that blood and the water symbolising death and new life flowing out of the body of Jesus when he was pierced by the soldier. And that image should take us back to another place in John. Remember, John's writing is a very spiritual writing. It's not like the other synoptic gospels where things are laid out for us, the facts are given. This one, we're given an interpretation. It's a very spiritual gospel uh, and it seeks to teach us in a different way. So this one takes us back to John chapter 7 where Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within or literally in the Greek out of the belly of him. Beloved disciple next appears in the scenes associated with the empty tomb. So Mary Magdalene has brought her report back to the disciples. This beloved disciple and Peter set off racing towards the tomb. The beloved disciple gets there first, probably because he's the younger and fitter of the two. He doesn't go in, possibly because Peter is the more senior, so he waits for him. Peter gets there, Peter goes in first, the beloved disciple follows. Both of them look around at the physical evidence that's there, the strips of linen. But only one of them, the beloved disciple, sees beyond the physical evidence and believes. Sometime later, the disciples have gone fishing. We're now in John chapter 21. The beloved disciple is among all of these who have laboured all night in the fishing boat and have caught nothing. Now, it's dark at night. Perhaps it might be dawn, but it's not easy to see. Someone yells out to them from the shore to put the net in on the other side. And when they do, the catch is so great that they are not able to haul it into the boat. All of them who were present see this great miracle, but only one of them sees beyond the miracle to recognise the significance of it. He turns to Peter and he declares, it's the Lord. And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, is over the edge of the boat and splashing his way to the shore. The beloved disciples' last appearance comes at the very end of the gospel. Jesus has just reinstated Peter and has again instructed him to follow him. Now, presumably the two are walking along the shore and the beloved disciple is following along behind them. And here again, there is a contrast between Peter, who insisted early on that he would follow, he would even lay down his life for Jesus, 
but then ultimately denied him and had to be called to follow again. And this beloved disciple who has faithfully followed all along. This disciple is qualified by the special relationship that he has to Jesus to testify to all these things. This special relationship was highlighted at the Last Supper, which is the beginning of the second half of the Gospel. And we are reminded of it here by specific reference to it, to that scene at the, the Last Supper at the very end here of the second half of the gospel. He is the one who has faithfully followed. He alone of the male disciples witnessed the crucifixion. He was first to the tomb. He was the first to believe in the resurrection, the first to recognize the risen Lord Jesus. He sees what the other disciples do not see. Many, many people saw Jesus walk the earth in the flesh. But many of them fell away on account of the things that Jesus did or the things that Jesus said. They saw the man, but they failed to see the glory. And many today still recognise Jesus as a legitimate historical figure. They're happy to accept many of the things that he did but they fail to see his glory. They fail to see beyond the flesh. And that is the whole point of John's gospel. The other gospel writers give the facts. They report what Jesus did and what he said in the flesh. But John's gospel interprets these things for us in a spiritual sense with the aim to help us see the glory and to believe. Why is this beloved disciple anonymous throughout the entire gospel? Lots of people have different theories about that. Some say he was trying to avoid persecution and that was the best way to do it. Others say he was very humble and wanted to keep the limelight off himself. But personally, I think that his anonymity is a deliberate literary ploy in this gospel because in his being anonymous, he could be any one of us. Any one of us could be a beloved disciple. Any one of us could share the same spiritual perception that he was privileged to share simply by doing as he did, by remaining in the bosom of Jesus, by developing that relational intimacy with him and by faithfully following him all the days of our lives. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful example we have in this beloved disciple of John's gospel. Help us to love you and to remain faithful to you just as he did, that we might have that same depth of spiritual perception that he had. Not only to see you as 
you are, but to see the world as you see it. Jesus, we love you. Amen. We're going to stand now and sing our final song. We're going to be led by Ed and Sarah in Abstentia. Um, and the song is Yet Not I. Would you like to stand? <laughs>